Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of our show. I'm very excited for this episode, excited to bring you this interview today with Dr. Mike Bicknell. I think you're going to learn a lot. We're going to talk about clinical topics. We're going to talk about business management. We're going to talk about personal management. So this is something that I know you're going to learn a lot from, and it'll be really worth your time. I'm excited this week as well for a trip that I have planned. I'm leaving this Friday to head to Uganda to volunteer at Hope Smiles, a dental clinic there in Jinja. Uh, We're going to be doing some dental work and some orthodontic work, and I'm traveling with my brother uh, who's applying to dental school this fall. So uh, it should be a great trip for the two of us to spend some time together, hopefully to have a little bit of an adventure and to do a lot of good for the kids and uh, people there in Uganda. I'm definitely going to be updating you guys and bringing you some more information as to uh, how that trip went and uh, hopefully dedicate a whole podcast episode to that in the near future. Today in Keene, New Hampshire, in here in New England, the weather is definitely starting to turn. It's definitely starting to feel like fall. It's cool at night. It was even cool during the day. And uh, whenever the weather starts to turn, it reminds me that the end of the year is coming. And so even though some of you may still be very warm wherever you're located, uh, it's definitely getting to be that time here in late September where my thoughts turn to kind of wrapping up the end of the year and starting to think about setting some goals for the new year. So we'll talk more about this in upcoming podcasts, but I want you to start thinking a little bit about this year. What went well? What needs to be improved for next year? What are the areas that you want to focus on uh, in your perhaps your personal finances, your personal goals, your practice goals? Just start to have those ideas percolating around in your head a little bit And as we get towards the end of the year, I'll talk a little bit more about setting some firmer goals and doing some end-of-the-year planning for the next year. We're going to get right into our interview today with Dr. Bicknell, but first, a quick word from one of our sponsors. We are so happy that OrthoChats is one of our premier sponsors for the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. As you know, providing radical convenience to our patients is becoming a big priority. Online chat is now a basic customer service standard for practices across the country. More millennials are seeking orthodontic care for their kids and competition is growing, so getting to patients faster and stopping the shopping process is more important than ever. How many patients have you missed after you turn off your phone at 5 o'clock or before you start answering the phone in the morning? What about the weekend? OrthoChats is the world's leading online chat provider for orthodontic practices. They have a team of in-house smile specialists who provide a warm greeting to every potential patient at all hours of the day, 24-7, 365. OrthoChats makes sure that you never miss an opportunity to have a value-building conversation with a potential patient. With almost a million chats of experience, they are experts at collecting information from new patients and getting them connected with your practice. Stop wasting your marketing dollars by sending people to a website that is static and lifeless. Hire OrthoChats today to help capture new patients 24-7. Visit orthochats.com before the end of the month and mention Elevate Orthodontics for $200 off your startup. Thanks again to OrthoChats for your sponsorship of the podcast. A diplomat of the American Board of Orthodontics, Dr. Mike Bicknell attended the University of Illinois at Chicago for undergraduate, dental school, and orthodontic residency, graduating in 2002. Now in private practice, he's a former clinical instructor at UIC and continues his involvement there by lecturing to dental students and orthodontic residents throughout the year. 
He has presented his material at numerous orthodontic meetings throughout the country, including the last few Ormco forms. I'm privileged enough to be here in Chicago, where Ormco is sponsoring a wonderful weekend, and Dr. Bicknell is one of the speakers. Dr. Bicknell practices and resides in Elmhurst, Illinois, with his wife, Catherine, and four children, Morgan, Macy, Max, and Marina. Dr. Bicknell, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, Lance. It's actually my pleasure and an honor to even be uh, sitting here and talking with you right now. So thank you. Great, great. Well, I always ask my guests uh, their sports affiliation. It's like, are you, we're here in Chicago. Are you a Bears fan? You know, everyone always asks if I'm a Cubs fan or a Sox fan, and my answer is always I'm a Hawks fan. A Hawks fan. So I, uh, you know, I grew up playing baseball, and uh-huh. you know, you play it long enough, and I don't like watching it. <laughs> so you know, football, I usually fall asleep. Okay. You know, I'm not the the tailgater kind of guy, but I think hockey mirrors my personality. It's yeah. fast paced. It's quick. You can go to a, a game, be home in three hours, and, and I just love the Blackhawks. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm a Chicago fan, but I love the Blackhawks. Yeah, I love going to hockey games. I agree. Yeah. That's a super exciting uh, sport to go see. All right, great. Well, we just finished hearing you lecture. You gave a great presentation here. Again, thanks to Ormco for sponsoring this weekend. We're going to go into a couple of different topics here. But first, before we do that, tell us a little bit about your practice. You started it from scratch and, and you kind of built it up. And in 60 seconds, give us the rundown on, on your practice experience. Like you said, we, I graduated in 2002. And as most um, residents, you know, I thought I knew everything and quickly realized that I needed to learn a lot. I started in a large group practice, had a bunch of general dentists, hygienists. It was a really, really big producing facility and they had a specialty division. So I was hired to be the orthodontist. I replaced an older orthodontist. Um, and over the course of you know a few years, I, I really, really learned how to address significant problems and face challenges and come up with solutions and implement them into a small practice. So a couple of years into that, I decided to uh, open my own practice closer to home. And that's where I picked was Elmhurst due to demographics. So I started that in 2005 uh, from scratch. And, you know, growth was good, you know, but like most practices, we had a few stumbling blocks along the way. And when I really look back at those stumbling blocks, looking back at it now being reflective, most of it was because there was a lack of focus and a lack of leadership. Uh, I could blame it on the economy or personal issues or changing orthodontic market which definitely are factors. But truly, I think if I really look at the dips in my practice, it was because I wasn't leading the team. I think that's a great insight. You were generous enough to kind of share your story today and how that happened. And you talked somewhat about how the practice, you know, and in your case specifically, had these periods of growth and periods of plateaus. And I think it was really, it hit home to me that our practices really are reflections of ourselves. And as our life goes, so goes our practice a little bit which is exciting in a way. It's also a little bit nerve-wracking. But I think what you mentioned, that, that, that really, if we can take that accountability on ourselves and take responsibility, you know, that can be an empowering realization when, when we realize that we do have to look in the mirror to kind of find the answers for our practice's success. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's about accountability. And truly, if you're really honest with yourself, those, those dips can be explained. It's just that a lot of times it's natural to look outside yourself because it's less painful and easier, but it doesn't help. So if you can really be honest with yourself, change your mindset and learn from your past, you can have an amazing future. Well, let's dig into that a little bit more. I'd love for you to tell our audience a little bit about how you kind of think about your practice in terms of your life. Like how do you design a vision for your life? And then, then how do you make your practice 
serve that vision and really fulfill the goals that you have personally and professionally? That's a really a great question because I'm, I'm really I'm, I'm passionate about this and the fact that when you take orthodontists, we are unique people. You know, we've we've been raised to think that you know failure really isn't something that that comes our way. I mean, we fail all the time, but for some reason we've made it through those failures. Uh, whether it's through school, whether it's through college acceptance, and we we enter this workplace with this idea that we're just we're going to go at it. And what happens is no one really teaches you what you're actually going at. Right? You just don't want to fail. So the opposite of failure is success. So you're just going to throw everything that you have at succeeding. And what I started seeing in my career, and it was you know a few years into it, were people that I respected that had everything going for them, and then just their lives were falling apart. I don't maybe it's just how I was raised, and you know my looking at this person has worked very hard and has everything, and what's going on in their life. So somewhere around seven years ago, I really started asking that question pretty intently. I started reading a lot. I started looking at myself and being very self-reflective. And what I realized is no one really gave us the tools to determine what we want out of life. Until you really ask yourself that question, you really don't know where you're going. So, you know, you can read all these books about business and business talks about vision. If you don't have a vision, you really have no measurability or no way of getting there. But no one talks about a personal life vision. We talk about business vision, but it's at the expense of our, ourselves and our family. And that's tragic. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of ironic, too, because, I mean, business vision sometimes can be these kind of very nebulous things, whereas your personal vision for your life, that should be something that's kind of important to you. Well, that should be the primary importance. I right. mean, you know, we're not defined by who we are or what we do. We're defined by the way we treat people. And if we're only focused on succeeding in the business place, a lot of people get hurt. And unfortunately, I don't think any of us are raised that way. Um, so when I started seeing this, I started reading a lot. And you know, we had talked about this before, but I had this affinity for nonfiction. I mean, any single book. Uh, I went to a lot of seminars. Yeah, I, I did the whole Tony Robbins walk on fire thing. Um, and it's kind of gimmicky, but I think that that whole idea of embracing your power from within or unleashing it is all about overcoming those self-limiting beliefs. So I really kind of looked at this and said, what do I want in my life? And strangely enough, what I started looking at is that that's a way that you can emulate your, your personal life into your practice life and get a practice that sustains and supports your personal life. So if I clarify that, essentially, if I look at what's important to me, you know, and I prioritize my life and I look at what's important, is it family, professional goals, is it teaching, education, community support, um, learning and growth? What I have to figure out is how much of that do I want to do on a weekly and yearly basis? And I have to set goals for myself. And I think what the epiphany that I had was that if I really look at my life, I can come up with an estimated number from a standpoint of what I need to make financially to satisfy that life, right? So let's say that's a certain number. Um, I then started looking at the fact that I own an orthodontic practice, and that orthodontic practice can be looked at and that can provide that income. And really, if we look at it, it can provide it by the number of starts that I do. So whatever market you're in, whatever, whatever it might be, you take your starts and you look at your overhead and look at how much you charge, and it gives you a number of what you think you, know, you can make as an income. Well, what I looked at was the income that I had set for myself was easily sustainable by my practice. But if I let my practice grow out of control, then I would be making more money for some reason that I didn't have a purpose for. And what I saw happening were people were getting so far outside of their value set of who they were as a person because they were in a very gifted and and beautiful profession. They could have a high income that at the end of the day, they were so wired for success and they just kept going. Where do you stop? You know, and and it's at the expense of what are you going to do with more unless you have a plan for it? I totally agree with that. And 
in a certain sense, anyone in any profession, I think, can make these decisions about what's important for them in their life and how they're going to structure things, but probably not with the flexibility and the profitability that we enjoy as orthodox. I think we're kind of uniquely situated. So I do think that when we decide how much do we want for family in terms of time, how much does our family need in terms of money, you know, what are the... Uh, kind of social things that we want to do? What are the hobbies that we want to do? And really take a look at that. That might mean that we opt for a practice that's not as big as we potentially could grow it, but to fulfill all those values in our life, I think that's something that we're really lucky as orthodox that we're able to do. I I totally agree. Um, I really do. I think that you know, no matter what profession you have, you can do exactly that. You can look at what's important in your life, and if you decide that you want something more, then it just gives you the answer that you have to do something else or do something more or improve your skills or gain something that maybe you have to hustle more, however it is. But you are right. In our profession, we are blessed that if, you know, if we treat people well and we pride ourselves on doing a really great job and taking care of people, just by those natures alone, we can be highly successful financially. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we check that with what's important to us. Yeah. Um, and I grew up with two working parents. Um, you know, my dad was awesome, hard worker. Uh, my mom, same thing. Very, very humble beginnings. So it's kind of like I know what it's like not to have anything. So really, things aren't important, but you still grow in an environment where things, you have them. But it's just fun for me because as I start getting older and I start realizing that time is the most important thing, time with my family, time with my wife, time with my, even in my practice, I have to be passionate, I have to be excited, but I also have to be balanced. And if you're spending too much time doing one thing, you're not balanced. So when we take this, you know, you've got a vision for your life, now we've got a vision for our practice, we're coming into our practice and we're setting goals for the type of orthodontist we want to be. We want to have a certain culture in our practice, a certain environment. Uh, We see other orthodontists that have certain kind of maybe dynamic personalities or unique practices. And we say, oh, I want to be just like that person or just like that person or... But how do you kind of go into your practice and, and kind of set the tone and be a leader? How does that kind of flow down from the top in terms of how you lead your team? So, again, the, these are wonderful topics, and I think that not a lot of people spend as much time thinking about these that they should. Um, you know, you see a lot of cliché quotes like, you know, be yourself because somebody else has already taken, right? Um, that is true. You know, I think that I look back and some of the books that I've read and some of the things that, I, that resonate in my mind talk about our values. And they talk about our values being set before we're 10, right? And who gives us our values? It's your parents, it's your coaches, it's your teachers, your mentors, your friends, your priests, whatever it might be. By the time you're 10 or 11, you've got this core value set that's built into your, into your DNA. And we then progress through life and we end up as orthodontists, right? So... A long time ago, you could create a business that was highly profitable just by following protocols. But now people really need authenticity. And I believe that authenticity is absolutely synonymous with your core values. So if your core values are one thing, and you're leading a practice that's based off your core values, and you're not violating those values in any way, then you are exactly who you should be. You know, when everyone has an image, right? I mean, we've got Instagram, Facebook, and everyone's putting stuff out there. I mean, very rarely are people's image what truly their image is in reality. But the closer you can get those two together, the more authentic you are, the more authentic you are, your team believes in you. People do not want to work for somebody who's fake. Yeah. And they will work for you for a paycheck, but they won't believe in your cause. And your cause is your mission. And that is based off of 
absolutely your value set and nobody's values are the same. So I always try to tell people when I'm talking to them, look, here's what I do. But the biggest thing that I want to give you is that do what you want to do, whatever that may be. It might be a single practice with five employees, you know, working nine to 12 days a month. It might be to be the busiest orthodontist in your area, whatever that may be. It has to satisfy your value set. If it does, you will have a culture that is amazing because you'll be happy. Most people are unhappy because they violate their values and they don't admit that, but that's what ends up happening. So if you can go and work every day and you're happy with what you're doing and your life is a reflection of your practice and vice versa, your team will do anything because they want to be part of that. Right. They really do. Yeah, I agree. And I think that when you're inauthentic or when you're perhaps embracing a value or an idea that really doesn't fit with your core values, your team especially can kind of see through that, even if perhaps patients can't. So then it's your, kind of your leadership is destroyed. Plus, it's just exhausting trying to be someone who you're not. And I think that's unsustainable as well. Well, and I also think, I mean, I actually think patients are astute to it as well. I mean, there's this, there's this weird body language that happens when, and there's some books that really talk about this, and most of it's in real estate. When these real estate agents are trying to sell properties, the most successful real estate agents are absolutely themselves. They're not trying to be somebody else. And people trust that because there's something about that soft skill that when you're acting in the way that is you and you're not somebody else, you may be eccentric, you may be timid, you may be quiet, you may be outspoken, but whatever it is, you have this energy that people don't understand what's even happening and they trust it. And I think that, I do think that a practice that is value-driven practice that has a mission and a culture based around that is just so unique. People aren't used to that, especially in today's Instagram fake society, that it's refreshing and it, it infers trust very quickly. Let's dive in here with a couple of clinical topics. I think you're known as a very highly skilled clinical orthodontist, and I just want to touch on a couple of things that you mentioned in your presentation today, the first of which I guess starts right at the very beginning with how you kind of evaluate and diagnose patients. You talked about this morning a comprehensive aesthetic plan, how you kind of look at a patient and and come up with goals and how you're looking at smiles. And tell us a little bit more about how you how you evaluate a new patient. So, you know, a lot of that comes back to what we're taught and then how we evolve, right? So, you know, when you're in ortho residency, you're really just getting the basics. I mean, you're learning how to look at a patient, how to assess a problem, how to figure out what you want to do, and then come up with some way of treating that. So it's that whole idea of, you know, generating a problem list, an objective, and a plan. And we're all taught that. And we're taught very basics because there's a lot of information to get to us in two to three years. So we get out in private practice, and some people are lucky enough to have an amazing mentor. Some people are lucky enough to have the time to see other people speak and have mentors, and some people aren't. And what I found was that the way that I drove my initial career was that I jumped right into practice, and I was doing what I learned in residency, and I was doing good work, and I was proud of it. And then when I finally got the ability to take time away from that because I was broke, and I just ran in and tried to make money to satisfy my credit cards. But once I finally got the ability to say, I'm going to take a couple days off work and go to a a CE meeting, I started seeing people that were presenting cases that were beautiful and they weren't what I was doing. So that really made me super aggressive to say, you know what, they're doing it, I can do it. I mean, I just need to figure out how. So I really got into it and I started looking at people that were putting out beautiful finishes 
And what I started realizing is that they were looking at the smile and not the teeth. You know, I think we're trained to fix bites and teeth, um, but the people who were giving beautiful results were treating the face and the smile. Um, so I really, you know, got into that. I, I, I really looked at some of these uh, Ormco forums. It's one of the reasons I gravitated towards uh, the Damon system was just because at that time, the people who I really looked at, John Graham, Pitts, Frost, Dwight Damon, they were producing amazing smiles that I really loved more so than what I saw anywhere else, including my own practice. Once that happened, I started diving a little bit more. And, you know, people like David Sarver, who I really respect, really started outlining this whole idea of it's more than teeth. There's a smile to it. And that's really where I based off our comprehensive aesthetic diagnosis was in Dr. Sarver. Um, he really isolates not only our, our initial treatment plan based off of photos and x-ray measurements, but he looks at, you know, macro, mini, and micro aesthetics. And when I dove into that and I applied that to my patients, um, it allows me now to see more which allows me to treat more and get a much better result. And by looking at those in that order, I go from big to little. And by taking care of all of those things, I'm super proud of the results that we're achieving. And I learn new things every day, and I can't wait to see what my results look like 20 years from now. Yeah, you said a couple of things there that I just I want to dig into because I love a few of those things. The first is, I think, what you said about you have to be looking for these things in order to find them. I mean, we've all read Dr. Sarver's uh, information on aesthetics. But most of us, we, we read it, we nod our heads, and then we go back to doing things the way that we're doing it. Sure. You actually take different records. You take uh, you know, these uh, close-up pictures of the smile with uh, you know, block-out retractors. You've got very meticulous records because if you're not seeing it, how are you ever going to improve it? I think that that's something that's super important. It is, it is. And you know, I think that when you can highlight these issues and you can blow them up and you can see them in contrast and you start to, you look from the big picture and then you move down to the little picture, it, it really, really at the very end enhances your end result. And the reason that I did that was, you know, I think maybe about 10 years ago, even after I was adopting some of the principles that I was learning from these highly skilled orthodontists who were putting out beautiful case after case, at least, at least on the stage. I don't know what their practices were like, but what they were showing were things that I wasn't getting. After I started reviewing all of my cases at the end, I was still missing things. Right. You know, I was like, really? Like, how did I miss that tooth? It's a half a millimeter, a millimeter taller than the other one. Or I've got that, that tooth is totally tipped. I can't believe I missed that. And that allowed me to develop protocols in our practice so that we could not miss those things. And rather than crossing my fingers and hoping that the end result is perfect, we strategically found ways to have checkpoints where we can actually evaluate the mini, the macro, and the micro aesthetics and, and actually address those problems. And it also comes with you know, learning new skills and learning how to use different instruments in ways that I never used before. Sure. And that was, that was the challenge. Sure. I want to I definitely talk about that. But I also want to kind of bring up another point that you maybe indirectly mentioned and this is this concept of, you know, how do we improve ourselves clinically as orthodontists? And there's this kind of middle ground that you have to strike. Like when you go to a meeting, on the one hand, you've got the people who have this, maybe it's the self-deceptive cynicism where they look at everything that's presented and they're like, oh, these are all cherry-picked cases. Oh, this, this is just a company trying to sell stuff. Oh, and they go back and they do things exactly the same and, and they're totally cynical about it. On the other far end of the spectrum, you have people that go to the meetings and say, I'm here for the cookbook. 
I'm going to do it exactly the way that Dr. Bicknell does it. I'm going to go, I'm going to write down every wire he uses and, oh, where do you buy your, your, your cotton gauze from? I, I got to write this stuff down and then I'm going to follow this cookbook and then I'm going to be successful. I'm going to get exactly what he gets. So there's this kind of middle path that you have to strike where you have to be, I think, believe that you can improve and, and, and have you know, some amount of faith that you can achieve these results, but also be inquisitive and self-aware enough to realize that it's going to require a little bit more effort than just kind of copying what you see. Well, no, I, I, I definitely agree. It's one of the reasons why in my first or my third slide, I put down that, that although I'm going to show you some wonderful cases that represent the core idea of my life and my practice, this is a presentation that's taken 300 hours of work to put together. And the things that I'm showing you are for an idea of what we all can do. Right. But I'm not perfect, and I have plenty of things where I failed on. Um, I, I agree with you. I think that it's tough. Um, you know, like I, I mentioned John Graham's lecture six years ago and, or seven years ago that I loved. It was the 10 things I've done, by, by 10 worst cases or something like that. I mean, that's, that's, that's really powerful to sit up in front of hundreds of people and show all of your mistakes. I mean, John's, you know, he could pull that off, right? I, I don't know if I'm in the career enough yet. I'll show, anyone comes to my office, I'll show them all my dirt. Um, but, you know, you're right. I think that for me... I just found that when I was sitting there in the audience listening to presenters, people were showing these amazingly challenging cases that really aren't the lifeblood of our practice. The lifeblood of our practice are the other 80% of cases that all have varying degrees of dental or skeletal you know, discrepancies that all need to be treated in an efficient manner. Um, to me... My goal was to improve the number of cases that I could finish to a higher degree more consistently. But by no means is everything perfect. No, you know? no, no. And that's the tough thing about it because people think that the cookbook will make it perfect. There's times I follow my own chocolate chip cookie recipe. I talked about this all the time. I love chocolate chip cookies. So I love baking them. I think I found the perfect recipe. But if I am going to change that recipe, I'm going to change one little ingredient a little bit and see how it affects the end result. You don't change seven different ingredients and think that you're going to know what happened. Yeah. So for me, you know, I think that it's just about process and knowing that that we're all smart enough to know that everything doesn't perfectly work out. But you know, there are times that we are pushed to treat more and more patients to a higher level of an end result in a shorter period of time with less pain. Yeah. And that's a lot of pressure on us. Um, and I think that for me, there might be theoretically a better mechanical way. But from a process standpoint, I think I've, I've figured that part out, and that's what I try to present. You know, I'd encourage any of our listeners, you know, if you're unsatisfied with your clinical results, you know, I think there are people that are probably getting better results. They're doing it with less effort and uh, more consistency. And I think that if you can find someone who could be honest with you, a mentor, or, or go to a meeting, I think there definitely is uh, opportunity to learn there. And for me, that's something definitely I'm always striving to. And in my own practice, I feel like I've got a long way to go before I can match some of the names we've talked about in this interview. But you know, it's gratifying to me to see our cases finish more predictably, more beautifully. As orthodontists, we love that. I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're a sucker for all the clinical stuff. We, we love that stuff. Well, you know, one of the things that's really nice, and I'm sure, you know, again, we, we look at things through the lens that we're dealt. And, you know, I use the Damon system, and I'm sponsored, and I speak for Ormco. So obviously, Ormco has their own agenda when people are paired up with me. But Ormco's got an amazing program called the Mentor Program. And, 
people can just call the rep and they can come out to my a mentor practice. It could be me. It could be anybody. There's a bunch of mentors out there and they can spend the whole day with them. And that's really cool because when you're allowed, and you could probably do that anyway, right? I'm sure we could pick one of our colleagues and we could reach out to them. And I know if anybody ever asked to spend a day with me, I'd say, fine, you know, sure. Just, you know, whenever it works and you can see what we do. And that's, I think, when you get a true understanding for what is it like in a, in, in a practice day for Dr. X or Dr. Y or Dr. Z. So, you know, I, I encourage that. I think that people should reach out. People should be kind enough to allow that transparency because that's the only way that we are going to elevate ourselves as a profession. Another thing that you mentioned today, Mike, was your oral hygiene program for when hygiene starts to get a lot of control. I think you uh, have a protocol that is, I think, assertive but effective. And maybe if you could just kind of run through, uh, I think you call it the Bright Smiles program and tell us a little bit about how that works in your practice. Yeah, so part of my lecture is we talk about strategic planning. Strategic planning is how do you come up with an idea, how do you refine it, and then how do you implement it, right? So when we were coming through with a checklist of things that we found frustrating in our practice years ago, the first one that I belted out was oral hygiene. I'm like, look, I'm like, you know, I I feel like I'm I'm a, a conscientious bystander of my patients destroying their teeth. My braces are causing this. They're not brushing, and I'm not going to throw them under the bus because, you know, this is my responsibility. And I don't want to see people end up in a worse position when they finish treatment than when they started. I just feel terrible about that. So we, as we always do, we sat around and we brainstormed. A few of us sat down in my office and said, look, let's come up with a program that is better than just telling our patients to brush and yelling at them, quote yelling at them. We don't yell at them, we talk to them. But when they go in the car, they say that we yelled at them and then the parent calls you, said, why did you yell at my child? And like, we didn't raise our voice. I go, we didn't yell, but we did talk to them about hygiene and then it becomes a problem. So we really wanted to find something. So at the end of the day, we we tried a couple things and what we ended up with is this thing that we branded or termed the uh, AOS Bright Smile program. And what, what I realized as an orthodontist is that I needed a program to be effective, efficient, and also not take up a lot of my time. Because I knew quickly that if something was going to take up a lot of my time, it was going to eventually run out of steam. I do believe in giving my team a career and not just a job. So we pledge to them full-time hours, even if I'm not in the office. So, you know, I'm here today speaking and my team's working. If I choose to go on vacation with my family, my team works. And we've found things for them to do when I'm not there. Some of them are pictures and some of them are instructions, but we figured that we could run this Bright Smile program um, in non-doctor-based uh, visits. So the, the simple version of it is if somebody comes into a normal um, orthodontic appointment and they have poor hygiene, which is under a B, um, they automatically get enrolled to our Bright Smile program, which is already talked about when we put braces on or we start Invisalign. What that is, is they get enrolled and the patient comes in two weeks after that appointment uh, for an oral hygiene instruction visit and a check uh, with one of the clinical team members, not with the doctor. Um, at that appointment, if, if the hygiene's better, then they're out of the hygiene program. If it's not, they come back two weeks again. So now we're at the fourth week. Exact same thing, oral hygiene instructions and then a check. If for some reason they still haven't figured it out, they get that third shot. So three strikes and you're kind of out, which is the six week of program. So they come back in for another check. And if things are good, great. They've graduated from the program. If things aren't, this is where it kind of gets serious. The next appointment, which is their normally scheduled adjustment appointment. Now, one of the things that's crucial is that the last three appointments have been on non-doctor appointments, either non-doctor day or when I'm not, when I'm not there to see the patient. 
The fourth appointment is set up with the TC, a financial coordinator, as well as the doctor. The doctor talks about you know, why we're going to eventually have to take braces off. The TC um, schedules the appointment for two weeks later to remove the braces. And the financial coordinator meets with the mom and talks about the financial responsibility that they've already incurred and how much they either owe or what we owe them back to finish treatment. I think that's what really sends the message home to the parent because we schedule that appointment. They get the appointment to get their braces taken off. And if they show up and their hygiene's improved, then we don't take the braces off and we do their adjustment. If they come in and it's not good, then the contract goes, we take the braces off. And what I can tell you is that we've been running this for about five or six years now. We've only had three patients who actually had to get their braces off, and I'm glad we did because that would have been a nightmare. And I can tell you that we have people come through our practice, and it's not perfect, but everybody says, I can't believe that your hygiene collectively throughout the practice is so much better than what I'm seeing. I still do have some patients that get some white spots and, you know, sometimes I scratch my head because I don't even have plaque. You take the bracket off and you're like, where's this coming from? But overall, from a standpoint, I think it reached the objective. I'm super happy with where it came from. Yeah. I, lo- I love how proactive it is. I love that it's done uh, without doctor involvement, clogging up the schedule with these appointments. I think that's, that's a really brilliant thing. Let's also circle back around, Mike, and talk, you, you kind of talked about this briefly, about how you finish a case. So we talked about at the beginning having comprehensive records that you could really come up with a problem list and then a solution to those problems. But as the case nears the end, sometimes bringing that thing in for a landing is a little bit tricky. And you spoke today a little bit about some processes that you have in your practice that allow you to have those consistent, repeatable, excellent results. Right. So one of the things that I noticed was you can diagnose treatment plans, start your case great, you can be cruising along great and have a wonderful result. But I noticed as I talked to colleagues and peers and as I was teaching at the university, everyone had their own way of taking braces off. And it always seemed abrupt and slightly messy. Some people were putting retainers on and snapping impressions and trying to hurry up and make uh, you know same-day retainers. Some people were doing different things. And what I found was that it created a lot of chaos, and nobody likes chaos. I don't. Um, it's just something that I like an ordered process that's reproducible and predictable. So we did the same thing. We went back and we said, okay, here's where our patient is ready to get their braces off. How do we develop a process that gets them off and does it in a very predictable fashion without a lot of stress? And you know, we came up with a you know a really nice removal sequence that works well. It's it's very transparent. It's given in a sheet form so that they understand that it takes anywhere between six to eight weeks from the time we say that you're going to get your braces off, that they'll be off. Um, And there's three appointments. And the reason that we broke it up into three appointments is so that we could have one appointment where we're doing all of our last minute checks. We're looking at enamel reshaping, contouring, gingival levels, bite. We're making sure that we're really, really giving one solid appointment where we're just checking everything. That second appointment, two weeks later when they come in, uh, we're just taking wires out, putting an upper fixed retainer on, and then scanning with a scanner for a digital process of retention. Pretty easy. They don't have to get molds. It's pretty awesome. And then when they get their braces off, we're taking the braces off cementing a lower fixed retainer and then delivering a set of what we call transitional uh, retainers. The transitional retainer that we use is really there to help hold the teeth for about a month while the gums are healing, the teeth are kind of finding their own way, the patient's getting used to wearing the retainers. Uh, And then when they come in for their final records, which is four weeks after removal, we rescan and that gives us their final uh, retainer package, which is uh, two upper Essex, two lower Essex, and the digital model. 
funny enough, you know, we talk about colleagues, and you know, I have to give credit to uh, I think somebody you've had on your program before, Dan Bills. Yep. I actually was using Hollies and Alginates years, years ago. And I remember reaching out to Dan and saying, you know, can you tell me about your digital retention process? And he was so kind to elaborate on it. And funny enough, you know, we see each other often. I refined it. And now he's asking me about how I refined it with the transitional. And it's this exchange of knowledge that has made just absolute growth. And, you know, I, I think that without asking those questions and without people helping you, it's very hard to improve on your own. You know, so many people have great and wonderful ideas and they're already doing it. And that's why I try to show this digital pathway to retention. But I think our removal sequence also allows me to know that in a higher percentage of cases, I can end up with a higher clinical outcome more often. One thing that, that I love about, you know, we talked about the oral hygiene program, we talked about, you know, this removal sequence, is how you have a very, I can tell, a systematic way of thinking about a problem and kind of breaking it down, coming up with the solution, and then implementing it, which I think is a little bit different from how most orthodontists uh, solve problems, which is they go to a meeting, they see something they like, they come home on Monday and they tell the staff, this is what we're going to do. And there's like no follow-up. Like, how do, we, how do we take an idea when, when someone hears something like this? Or, you know, what advice would you have for someone who says, look, I, you know, I, I have some ideas, but I don't really understand how to take that and implement it as a system. I mean, do I need something written? Do I need to do a training session? Do I need to have... What advice would you have for someone who's having a little bit of a struggle to implement these sorts of... So you know what I think, and, and it was funny, I was talking to some people last night at dinner, and we were, they were asking, you know, how did you learn this? How do you, how do you incorporate this in your practice? And I can really tell you that most of what I've learned about identifying problems and coming up with solutions and implementation is things that are outside the orthodontic community. It's books that I've read on other business practices, um, good to great. I mean, all these, there's about 50 books out there that if you just read, will just absolutely change your mindset. And what you realize is that when you see something that's not working, if you just rush back and do what somebody else does, you might fix it for a day or a week or a month, but eventually it just goes by the wayside. And what you try to implement isn't being done anymore. But if you think about the problem and you empower your team and you bring them into the discussion about the problem at hand and you give everybody a true voice on their opinion on how to fix it. You say, look, I saw this idea. It got me thinking. This is what you know, Dr. Miller does. Um, it's really brilliant, but how would that be applicable in our patients. Let's, let's kind of talk about this. And we'll do these at our staff meetings. We'll do uh, staff empowerment meetings or in development meetings. We set aside time in the schedule, usually every six weeks, where we spend about an hour of the clinical day without seeing patients. We'll try to Im- implement these. And we basically, it's kind of like brain mapping or, or whiteboard. We come up with ideas. We figure out how can this be used in our practice, and then we test it. And we test it quickly. And if it doesn't work, we redesign the process until it works, and then we implement. And what's great about that is that everybody on the team has been part of it. So without team acceptance and team accountability, you're never going to be able to get things implemented. Yeah. So, I mean, we're only one person, and we, we have to lead our team the right way. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Bringing people into the decision-making process certainly makes them feel empowered. What advice would you have for kind of that follow-up, that accountability part, making sure that the system or the new protocol continues to be followed, you know, and not having to constantly be the person that, that reinforces it? Well, so I think it's not doing too many things at once. So one thing, I'm glad you asked that question, because when we do these and we have something that we want to change, we, we come up with the idea, we test it, and then we implement it. 
and there has to be a, a timeline for full adaptation. And we don't do anything else during that time. So I think our problem, at least mine, is calming down the ideas that are circulating in my head because there's a lot of them. And if I think if any of my employees looked in my head, they'd be scared. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of stuff bouncing <laughs> around in there. So I have to know from my own self that I have to, I have to come up with an idea we have to calm down, pick one thing at a time. But once you implement fully, it really becomes something that is easy to continue to do. Um, you know, we don't have any protocols where we we list out our implementation and we see a year from now if we're still doing it. I mean, that's a great idea, um, which now that I'm thinking is probably cool. But the ones that really do work are really, really um, they stay. Right. As long as you don't throw too much at them, you can't have three different things going on. People don't know what to do. Only one ingredient per time on your chocolate chip cookie recipe, right? Exactly. Um, Mike, this has been a fantastic interview. I'm really excited to get this out there for our audience to hear. Uh, We're going to finish with our Express 8, Elevate Express (laughs) 8. I'm going to give you eight questions, and we'll get some rapid-fire answers. that sound okay? Yeah, go. What is your go-to treatment for full-step class twos? Uh, If there's a chin deficiency, a herpst. What's your standard retention protocol? Uh, upper fixed um, attached to the laterals and the centrals, a lower fixed that's 028 steel attached to the canines with overlay Essex, upper and lower. Upper and lower. And then in terms of retainer checks, do you see them? Uh, no. Once they have their final retainers, call us if you have a problem. Who are your role models or mentors? Role models or mentors? Um, you know, they've changed. Um, I think that early in my career, they were my instructors at the university, people like Bernie Schneider, who passed away, Elliot Sackles, these are our teachers, right? And then when you get in the big world, um, it's people that I emulated. I really did like Dwight Damon's and Stu Frost and, and Tom Pitts, um, people that were very didactic, like David Sarver and the Angle Society. Um, those guys were people that I read and read and read, you know, people like Gianelli. I mean, these are all classic people. Um, I think now, as I'm moving in through my career, I'm really looking at the people that are absolutely honest and I think... I can be relatable with. I believe their message. So, you know, there's, there's still quite a few people out there. You know, I think that um, the problem is, as you get to be, I'm 44, I'm kind of in this middle-of-the-road career. I'm not young, I'm not old, and weirdly enough, some of your mentors become some of your friends. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and like I said, you know, it's, it's, it's people, you know, like Dan Bills or people like yourself who, you know, are elevating the conversation, right? It's, it's pretty amazing. So it's, it's, it's kind of a weird spot right now. Yeah. What is your favorite orthodontic product or instrument? Something you wouldn't want to practice without? Um, I would probably say my burr block, which has uh, the same burrs in it that allowed me to do enamel reshaping, enamel recontouring, and interproximal reduction. Awesome. For tooth contouring, not just for crowding. Maybe we can get a copy of that and post it here in the show notes. Uh, sure. I have it actually in my reference on my lecture. So yeah, I have about 30 burr blocks I'll have the exact same stuff in it so that I, when I reach for it, I know which tool I need. Sweet. What's the best vacation you've ever taken? Uh, Fiji. I went to this little remote island, um, and it is where I married my wife, Catherine. Uh, it was on the other end of the world near a volcano. So pretty epic and cool. And then we came back and had another uh, wedding a month later, uh, and that was just as fun because it was family involvement. Uh, it was definitely great. Very cool. I know you're a big reader. What's one great book that you've read recently? The Art of Racing in the Rain, an amazing book. I'm not even a dog person, but everyone should read this book. Uh, it, it, 
I think highly summarizes everything that I hold passionate about my growth as a person. Um, it's really amazing. It's a, it's basically a story about a race car driver who's amazing at driving cars, but not exactly amazing at managing his life. And the story is told through his dog's eyes, who is the one person who absolutely loves and adores him. So it's a super awesome read. I've actually, my wife has read it, my oldest daughter read it, and um, it's pretty amazing. I'll have to check it out. It sounds, sounds like a good one. What bracket system are you currently using? Uh, I use the, the Damon system, DQ2 right now, variable torques. And what is one area of orthodontics that you would like to learn more about? Um, I think I still want to learn more about airway and um, muscle function. You know, I think that I'm get pretty good at the hard tissue stuff. You know, TADs, lasers, all that stuff um, that seems to be in my practice, but I'm still a little bit um, unsure and I think uneducated on our impacts with airway, although I, I know that there's a definite correlation somewhere. Yeah. I think the AAO Midwinter meeting this year is on that topic, and I'm hoping yeah. that some interesting stuff comes yeah. out of that, hopefully. I, 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 just, I just find that, you know, I don't want this pendulum to swing back and forth so hard that, you know, people make some crazy decisions. So I think that's, <laughs> that's my new focus, I think, over the next few years is really, really listening to people outside of ortho yep. um, that, that potentially um, have some really great information on, on the airway as a developing child. If people want to contact you, if they have maybe a follow-up question, what's the best way to do that? Facebook, email? Uh, yeah, so email's probably the best. Um, my email address is uh, mbicknell at smilesbyaos.com. Um, that's smilesbyaos.com. Um, feel free to you know call our office. If anyone's ever, ever in the Chicagoland area and wants to stop by our office, uh, same way, to check out our website uh, at smilesbyaos.com. Um, and then there's a contact form. My office manager, Sarah, sets everything up. Um, I actually just met somebody today who's coming in for an entire day. I didn't even know about it um, in like a week or so. So um, if you're ever around, want to say hi, see how we do things, that's, that's awesome. And uh, I'm open for anything. Awesome. Well, that, that's great. Thank you so much, Mike, for taking some time out of your day. Thanks to Ormco for uh, sponsoring this weekend. Uh, it's been a privilege hearing you speak and for taking a few minutes of your time for this interview. Been a blur. I can't believe we've been talking for, I don't know, 40 some minutes. So uh, thank you for what you're doing too. I really do. Uh, you know, again, we talked about this before. I think that knowledge should be easily attain and it shouldn't be hard to find. And I think that, you know, by doing what you're doing, it, it, it allows people to sit back in the comforts of their own home and maybe pick something up. So thank you for that. And thank you for having me. All right. We'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode.